1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 19. Now this is the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we continue in our series in uh, Timothy, we are now at the end of a very long journey. Uh, 2019 is coming to an end. Uh, our study in 1 Timothy is coming to an end. And coincidentally, uh, Paul's final exhortation found in today's passage is founded on the truth that your life and the world that we know it will also come to an end. This is what Paul says earlier, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. This morning, I would like to draw your attention to death. I'd like us to focus on this truth that our life here on earth is not forever and that we are looking forward to something eternal. Now, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination trying to be apocalyptic here, all doom and gloom. I'm simply drawing your attention to this easily forgotten truth that this life, that your life, is but a mist. I know we tend to say things like, life is so short, or we say things like, oh, time flies. But that's too generous. That doesn't do justice to what the Bible actually has to say about life. These are some ways in which the Bible describes life. The Bible says life is like a mist. Right? You see it for a little while and then it just vanishes. Or it says life is like a wind that blows. You feel it and then it's gone in an instant. It says life is like a shadow that passes. And perhaps my favorite, found in Psalm 90, life is like a sigh. It's like a sigh. 
These metaphors describe not just the brevity of life, but it speaks on the elusiveness of life. Friends, life is something that we try to control, try to contain, try to grab a hold of, but these metaphors tell us that life is something that we simply cannot grab a hold of. And so what Paul does in today's passage, he says this, don't try to take hold of your life here. Instead, 1 Timothy 6.12, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Put simply, Paul is saying this, this world is fading and your life is fleeting. Therefore, take hold of that which is eternal and enduring. Now this becomes the grounds on which Paul addresses the final group of people in his letter to Timothy. In our study in Timothy, we saw Paul address all sorts of people. We saw him address men, saw him address women, the deacons and elders, widows, those who desired to be rich. We saw him address employees and employers. But here, as he closes out the letter, he addresses the final group, which are those who are rich in this present world. Now, I think many of us sitting here would think, well, this is not for me. Many of us think that we're not in this category. Weirdly, Americans are overly private about their wealth and excessively humble about it. However, if you compare Christians in America, you and I, with the rich that Paul is actually addressing in Ephesus. And if you count for all the inflation and you do the conversion, by all standards and all measurements, we are still richer. So the people that Paul is addressing, those who are rich in this world, by any measurement, Christians in America are richer. Now, some of you might think that this is an unfair comparison. So if we just do a quick comparison with Christians in America, with the rest of the world, this still holds true. I'm going to read off some statistics, and these are recent numbers. And I got it from uh, organizations like UNICEF, uh, World Bank, uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. But just a few numbers. Currently, 10% of the world's population, that's about 730 million people, live on less than $2 a day, so about $1.90. That's 10% of the world's population. That's a cup of coffee. 25% of the world's population, 1.8 billion people, live on less than $3.20 a day. That's a latte. Half of the world's population lives on less than $5.50 a day. That's the sandwich at Chick-fil-A. So today, if you go out and if you buy a Chick-fil-A sandwich and a flat white at Starbucks without forfeiting a place to sleep, you are in the top 25%. Currently, 790 million people, about 11% of the world's population, still don't have access to clean water. 1.8 billion people don't have access to adequate sanitation. And every day, every day, nearly 29,000 children younger than the age of five die. And they die mostly from preventable diseases. That's about 20 children per minute. So if things like clean water 
adequate sanitation, basic vaccinations, if these things are not luxury to you, then we are, according to the world standard, we're rich. Now, if you think I'm just playing the pity card, let me just make things real, real simple. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you are among the top 1% of earners in the entire world. Now, we might not think that we are rich, but according to the eyes of the world and according to biblical standards, we are rich. So, with this in mind, what is God saying? What is God saying to us? What is God saying to those who have money in this world? Well, he gives a negative command and he gives a positive command. And I like to look at both. First, he says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. First command is this. Don't be haughty. Now, this, means, this word actually means to, to have an inflated view of yourself, right? So Paul is actually saying, for those who have money, teach them not to have an inflated view of themselves. And friends, this is exactly what money does. Money is able to mask our flaws. It masks our flaws so much to the point where we start to believe that we don't have any flaws. Rich people, people with money, are oblivious to their self-centeredness and to their own selfishness. You'll find rich people in wine caves trying to solve world poverty. And often, people with money have a higher view of themselves than reality would suggest. I don't know if you've ever, you know, experienced poverty or you were struggling financially and then you've started to make a decent income and living. Naturally, you start to feel better about yourself. Naturally, you start to think higher of yourself. You start to equate your worth, your economic worth, with your intrinsic worth. So Paul is saying this, if you are rich, do not teach them not to have an inflated view of themselves, which can often happen. And the second negative command is this. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, I know this runs contrary to common thought, right? We think that there's nothing more secure than cash. There's nothing more certain than gold. There's no market more stable than the U.S. stock market. And for those of you who have suffered or struggled financially, you know that there's nothing more uncertain than poverty. But once again, as Paul draws our attention to the fact that our life is but a mist, that this world is fading and your life is fleeting, Paul reminds his readers that the money we possess in this world is categorically uncertain. So, what are we to do? How are we to live? Well, Paul gives a positive command in verse 17. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, this is something that I had to take a deep pause with. 
I had to pause for a moment because I think right now in the world that we live in, there is a direct correlation between our income and our labor. There's a direct correlation between maybe our experience and our salary, our education, and our career. And because of this, often there is no room for God. And, and if I can ask just plainly, how much or how often do you acknowledge that what you have is from God? Remember when the Lord taught us to pray? He taught his disciples to pray. Remember that line that he teaches them? He teaches them this line, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't teach them to pray, God, give us six months supply. Give us a year's supply. He says, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, Jesus wanted us to learn daily dependence and trust. He wanted us to trust not in the riches that we have, but in him who graciously provides. Now, I'm not trying to make, you know, the congregation, I'm not trying to have us feel guilty about what you possess, okay? What you have is given for your enjoyment, okay? That's what it says. He who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, God gives these things so that we may enjoy them. However, enjoyment without acknowledgement is defiance. Enjoyment without thanksgiving is contempt. And I don't know how else to say this eloquently, but if you are enjoying what you have without thanksgiving and acknowledgement, without setting your hopes on God, it is pure contempt. You know, and I question if Christians in America or Christians in America today whether we trust in our riches or the one who richly provides. A.W. Tozer said this, the man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend upon that creed being true. He always provides himself with secondary ways of escape so that he will have a way out if the roof caves in. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the last day. The positive command is to trust not in what he gives us, but to trust in him who gives so, if we are to trust him, what are we to do with our riches? This is what it says. He continues on. Charge the rich to trust in God. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know what Paul says here? He says this. If you're rich in money, that's great. That means you can be rich in good works. That means you can take your money and you can convert it into good works. In other words, he's saying money affords you the opportunity to be generous. 
Money gives you the chance to share. Money allows you to invest in a kingdom, a kingdom that will never shake or fade. Money gives you the opportunity to convert that into something secure. And Paul says, when you do this, you are taking hold of that which is truly, truly life. You know, I want to share a story with you. This is emblematic of, I think, what Paul is saying in today's, um, in today's uh, passage. Uh, a few years ago, uh, our ministry, we were blessed and privileged enough to help resettle two refugee families. Uh, one was from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, the other was from uh, Benin. Um, and the first family that we've settled uh, was uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They grew up in a refugee camp uh, in Rwanda, and we had the chance to help resettle them, to partner with them. And they were really a part of our community. They were part of our family. They lived in Lansdale. Uh, they were part of our church, uh, part of our small groups. And um, we had a chance to really minister to them. Uh, many of the families and the children, they got close with them. And it was just a blessing to see. Now, there is someone in our congregation who, um, who had, had a daughter. And when she saw uh, this family, she was moved with mercy. And she was saving up for a computer. She had saved up about $700. And she had the thought, you know what? I should give this to them because they need it. And of course, the parents said, that's a great thought. But that's just a thought. <laughs> that's a great thought. Let's leave it at a thought. Because of course, the parents are thinking, oh, you know, like, she really wanted a computer. She saved up all of her money for it. And of course, you know, when, when I heard that, I thought, man, what a great heart. What a great thought. And we sort of settled at that. Sometime later, I remembered uh, the story of Jesus uh, and the widow in Mark 12. Jesus is at the temple one day, and he's actually observing people. So Jesus isn't sitting far off from, the, from um, where the offering is taking place, and he's actually watching people. And he watches this one widow come. And this one widow comes, and she gives uh, two coins. She gives everything that she has. Now, Jesus doesn't storm in, and he says, hey, 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 listen, this is everything that you have. Just take it back. You need this. No, instead, he allows her to give, and he doesn't deprive her of the joy of giving. He doesn't deprive her of taking hold of that which is truly life. I remember that, and I talked to the family again, and we talked, we discussed. Should we allow this to happen? Are we depriving her of something if we say, no, you hold on to this? She'll have over a dozen computers for the rest of her life, but this opportunity to give, which the Lord has placed in her heart, should we encourage it? And of course, we settled on yes, we should. And there we met together, the two families, we were having lunch. And there the daughter gave her savings. 
it actually moved the family in tears. She said, this is what I've been saving up, but I want you to have it because I think you really need this. What she was doing was she was converting money into eternal joy. She was converting money into an eternal investment. And you know, as the adults, we sat there, we thought of how foolish sometimes we are, depriving people of the joy of giving. You know, friends, any financial advisor will tell you, don't sit on money. Don't sit on money. Money isn't something that you are just to hold on to. Any financial advisor will tell you that money is a tool to build something. And of course, what they're talking about is building wealth, building a legacy, building a trust. They'll tell you, what you want to do is you want to take money and you want to convert it into positions in a company or the entire market into a fund. That's what financial advisors will tell you. But Scripture seems to take a very similar message. Scripture is saying this, take money and convert it into positions in the kingdom of God. This is an investment that will never fade or diminish. You know, personally for me, um, yeah, I, I tend to be a more uh, numbers-driven guy. Um, I enjoy data, looking at it, and just, just analyzing it and coming up with some sort of story. And uh, ever since I can remember, I was taught to budget everything, to have a budget sheet. So I started, you know, keeping track of everything. Uh, I keep track of almost every penny and by every category. And now, uh, up to 2019, I have about 21 different categories. So if you really want to see my idol, I mean, just ask to see my spreadsheet. That would reveal a lot. Or, or maybe my spreadsheet is my idol, I'm not sure. But um, so I have the spreadsheet where I budget everything. Now, everyone in their heart uh, determines what he or she wants to give. Now, for some, it's 5%. For some, it's 10 For others, it's giving away 20%. For me, when I first became a Christian, uh, my mentor told me, start with 10%, and every year increase 1%. So I thought, okay, that's a great idea. Start with 10, every year increase by 1%. But I realized at that time, I was a college student, I, was, I had multiple side hustles, but I thought, you know, 1% isn't really going to make that much of a difference. Um, I knew I was gonna go to seminary, and so I thought, okay, even if I increase 1% a year, that's not gonna make that much of a difference. And so what I started to do was, I started to budget out everything, have the actuals, and at the end of the year, I would look at the actuals. So if the giving was at 10%, I would look at the next highest category, the next highest expense. And for instance, I think one year it was public transportation. Public transportation was about 12%. And so I said, I set a goal. I said, you know what, next year what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually reverse the two. I'm going to try to decrease public transportation spending, be a little bit more mindful, bring that down to 10 and increase giving to 12. And that's sort of been the year, how I go about the year in terms of what I determine in my heart to give, and I shift back and forth. Now, the most recent uh, expense that I've been trying to match is groceries slash household goods. I've been trying to match this for the past three, four years, and I have to admit, it's been crushing me. I've been trying to match my giving 
with this one category called groceries slash household goods, and I cannot seem to do it. it you know, even, even um, last week, as I looked, looked at the spreadsheet, and I saw that I was falling short again by about 8%, and I started to get so frustrated. I started to, you know, take it out on my wife, you know? I started to say, you know, honey, I love our kids, but they're not helping right now. They're boys and they eat a lot. It's not working, right? And I keep pressuring my wife, you know? I know Brooklyn, you know, he's, he's turning too soon. You gotta potty train him. Get him off the diapers. Get him off the diapers. Because these household goods, they're just crushing me. You know, and you know, I, I get so frustrated when, when I see this because yeah, we buy these things, probably made in China, sold on Amazon, delivered to my house in two days, only to just sit in my garage for weeks at a time, doing nothing. Now, yeah, you know, my wife thinks I'm, I'm a little too calculated with this, but this is sort of what I try to aim for, because, you know, when we want to be generous and give, that means we have to cut somewhere else. And so I've always tried this reverse uh, method. And, and I'm sharing this with you because in all of our lives, there should be a healthy pursuit of giving. I'm sure that many of you in this room are probably more wise and more prudent with your finances than I am, that you're better at budgeting but friends, can I just challenge you this morning that the goal of budgeting is not just to balance, but the goal of budgeting is to find your idols, to identify your idols, and see how you can convert that into eternal investments. You know, this is what Paul says. He says this, this and I find this to be uh, yeah, I find this to be um, ironic. He says this, those who are rich in this present age, those who are rich in this age, those who are rich in this age, it doesn't mean that they will be rich in the age to come. You know, there's a point in Jesus' life where he uh, faced a very similar challenge. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled with a choice. And the choice was, should I go to the cross? Should I lay down my life? And should I invest in eternity for us? Or should I just continue to enjoy that which I had? This is Jesus. And Jesus had every right to choose the latter. He had every right to just continue to enjoy what he had. There was nothing deficient in Jesus, and there was nothing in us that demanded that he give himself for us. Yet Jesus willingly and voluntarily goes to the cross. He dies for our sins, and he rises again for our life so that we would also be a part of eternity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, please don't misunderstand. I am not guilt-tripping you in any way, and by no means am I extorting you. 
but I'm calling you to what Scripture calls gospel partnership, to fellowship with Jesus. I'm calling you to take hold of that which is truly life. If this world is fading and our life is fleeting, will we take the things of this world and convert it into that which is enduring and eternal? Horatio Barnard says this, Upon a life I had not lived, upon a death I did not die, Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. You know, I began today's message by talking about the frailty of life, how life is a mist, here today, gone tomorrow. We appear for a little bit and disappear. Scripture says we are like dust. Scripture says we are a blade of grass, insignificant without nothing really to show for. We bring nothing into this world, and we leave with nothing. Yet at the same time, the Bible says, this insignificant life, your insignificant life, has eternal consequences. That what we do here on earth actually reverberates in eternity. And Paul here is commanding, take that which you have in this world and convert it into something that you will have in the world to come. Friends, may we take this. And here, once again, this is, this is a quote that, that Jamila, that I, that I often quote, and let me just end with this. He says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Would you join me in prayer at this time?